Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the story of Noah, the Ark, and the Flood. I tell a story from North America, from Asia, from Europe, from Africa, from the Middle East, and they're all over. And some people will say, well, you know, that's because floods are a universal thing that happens. They happen all over. And that's true. And some people say, well, maybe they copied one from another. But I think the real answer is that this is a universal collective memory of a one world flood. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Most people, when they think of the flood, the ark, Noah, they think of some cute bathtub toy boat with giraffes sticking their necks out the top. Or maybe you think of Russell Crowe watching the coming of the rain in his movie Noah. But few stories in the Bible are as filled with as much mystery, intrigue, and controversy as Noah. Noah's ark the vessel in the Genesis Flood narrative by which God saves Noah, his family, and a remnant of all the world's animals from the flood. God gives Noah detailed instructions for building the ark. It's to be made of gopher wood, smeared inside and out with pitch, with three decks and internal compartments, 300 cubits long, 30 cubits high, with a roof and entrance on the side. The story goes on to describe the ark being afloat throughout the flood and subsequent receding of the waters before it comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Of course, the story is repeated with variations in the Koran, where the ark appears as the Sarfina, Noah's boat. Was it indeed a global flood? Why did God flood the earth? And what other explanations could there be to explain the flood? Was there really an ark? And how did Noah build it? What did it look like, and could it have really housed all of those animals? And finally, if there was an ark, where is it now? Here to explain all is Larry Stone, an author and a publisher, and his latest book, Noah, The Real Story. Previously, he's written The Story of the Bible, which was a finalist for both the ECPA Christian Book Award and Retailer's Choice Award, and named one of the ten best Christian books of the year by Assist News Service. Hey, Larry, how are you? I'm great, Richard. I'm glad to be here with you. Well, thank you for spending some time with me. Very excited about Noah and the flood and the ark. I, as a child, you know, in Sunday school, that was one of the, the great stories, of course, of the Bible. Yes. Uh, and then I remember a, a few years later hearing Bill Cosby. Do you remember Bill Cosby's comedy routine about Noah and the flood and how Noah was ridiculed by his neighbors and so forth? Absolutely. 
it's a wonderful routine. It is, and it was sort of my introduction. But as I got older, of course, people started to debate whether that was even feasible. And I want to get into that a little bit later because I've I've actually looked at some feasibility studies of of the arc, and right. when you do that, it actually makes sense. But you know, people sometimes look at you like you have two heads when you say that. <laughs> First of all, I got to get your take, Larry, on on the movie, okay. uh, the Russell Crowe uh, movie and the Aronofsky uh, film. What is you, your take on that? Well, Paramount says it's a movie inspired by the biblical story, and that's probably a pretty accurate thing because there's enough difference in the movie that if you're going to expecting something to follow along the, the biblical story, you'll be disappointed or you'll be upset. When I saw it once, one of the times when I saw it, the previews were for a Batman movie and for a Transformer movie. And if you like those, you'll probably like a lot of the scenes in the Noah movie because it gets pretty, there's, there's battles, there's all kinds of exciting things going on. But there's enough difference in the movie from the Bible story to cause real concern. Now, there's some things they get right, too, and so we want to celebrate that. What What is it that you found a little disappointing, then, in terms of the narrative? Well, the two of the biggest things that I found most disappointing is, number one, the reason for the flood. In the Bible, it says that God saw the wickedness or the evilness of mankind, and he was grieved and made a decision to destroy the earth with a flood. And the Bible says that that was a moral, personal evil. He says there was uh, violence, there was sexual immorality, there was corruption, there was widespread lawlessness. And it says that the people just thought about evil, evil, evil from morning, noon to night. In the movie, however, the evil is described or as a disrespect for the environment. And the movie is very much of an environmental film. And in saying that, I don't say that we shouldn't respect the environment and we shouldn't help protect it, but the evilness in the movie was people eating animals and destroying the environment. And that's just a totally different thing than what the Bible pictures. Right, that's almost become the new religion, which is to worship the creation and not the creator. I, I think they call it Gaia, right? They, this uh, worshiping yes. the planet Earth. Yes, in fact, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, it talks about people that worship the crea- creation rather than the creator. So you're absolutely right. And the second thing is that Noah, in the movie, sees the people that aren't on the ark as being evil and wicked, however he might want to describe that. But then he becomes extremely upset with his son, and I think it's in the uh, an early draft of the movie, he actually hits him. And he's just devastated and realizes, and he says this, he says, the, the wickedness is in us as well as out there. Now, that is very biblical, but then he spirals down into almost a psychotic depression. And that gets into some very strange stuff in the movie, because Noah decides that God's purpose for the ark is to save the animals who are described as being innocent. But then when the flood is over, all the people, that is Noah and his family, are to die off and leave a perfect world with animals but no people. And that is just contradictory to what the Bible says. Because, because in the Bible, the ark is a, is a picture of salvation as a way of restoring the, the human race onto the earth. Right. Uh, yeah, there's definitely that, that sort of sinister uh, aspect of the green agenda there, no question. A human-hating, animal-loving. It is quite disturbing when you sort of scratch beneath the surface of that. Larry Stone is with us, the author of Noah, The Real Story. 
And uh, now, let me ask you, did, was this book in the works when you first got wind of the Aronofsky film about Noah? Was this sort of your attempt to sort of counter that, or was it just coincidental? It wasn't coincidental, Richard. I, I knew about the movie about a year or a year and a half ago, and it's not so much to counter the movie, because I didn't know when I first heard about it what all would be in it, but rather I knew I, I thought that people would be talking about Noah, and even though it's a favorite Bible story, there's so many different aspects of it, the animals, the ark, the flood, even the search for the ark on Ararat, that I thought people would be talking about it and just want to know the backstory, if you will, about the Noah story. So that's why I wrote the book. Let's talk about the flood. Supposedly, about 3,000 years B.C., there was this global flood, not just an isolated flood, but a global flood. And what's interesting, as you well know, is that when you look around at the legends around the world, there's virtually no culture, no civilization that hasn't talked about or written about or passed on via oral tradition a story of a global flood. That's right. And it, there's more than 300 of these stories around the world, and I tell about six of them in the in the book, in the Know the Real Story. But what's interesting is, of course, there's differences. So, for instance, in the uh, Chippewa, which is a Native American story, the uh, Noah character, if you will, is saved, and the animals are saved in a giant uh, canoe, which is, of course, part of their culture. And each culture may have a little bit different aspect to it, but generally it's one family or one individual that's warned by God of an impending flood, and the reason for the flood is usually because of man's sinfulness, and the, the man or the family and the animals are saved, and that is pretty consistent across the board. And the other thing that's significant about that is if you've got the Chippewa in North America, uh, you've got uh, you know the, uh, Gil the Epic of Gilgamesh, yes. uh, you know Babylon, the Hebrews. Uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, I'm sure whoever was inhabiting uh, Russia at the time uh, had, a, had a flood story. That tends to suggest that it wasn't isolated to the you know the area of the Black Sea. That this was in fact a global flood. Right. I, mean, I tell a story from uh, North America, from uh, Asia, from Europe, from Africa, from the Middle East, and they're all over. And some people will say, well, you know, that's because floods are a universal thing that happens. They happen all over. And that's true. And some people say, well, maybe they copied one from another. But I think the real answer is that this is a universal a collective memory of a one world, uh, worldwide flood. In the, the, the biblical narrative is that, you know, God decided to, to, to uh, f flood the earth. I, uh, sometimes we say, you know, maybe cleanse the gene pool, <laughs> and we can touch on that later and talk about the Nephilim and so forth and what that was really about. But, uh, you know, the, the narrative is that God decided it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But is there another explanation? I mean, that's the narrative. I mean, but what caused the flood? Well, actually, the Bible talks about three sources of the water. The 40 days and 40 nights of rain is what we usually think of, but that's probably only a, only a minor part of it. The two other explanations, or the two other things the Bible says, is first of all, the heavens opened. And we're not quite sure what that is, but it's more than just water from rain. And then the other thing, it talks about the, um, the fountains of the deep coming up. Now, 
I don't know if they got it right, but boy, in the movie, it looks great. There are these giant geysers that all of a sudden come all up around the, the, the ark, and it just lifts the ark up. So if you want to know what the fountains of the deep are, go see the movie, because they have a very cool picture of the fountains of the deep erupting. Now, uh, I mean, it sounds like you know there are, there are certain aspects of the film that you quite enjoyed. Oh, yes. Um, another one is people frequently ask, how the how did what they'll say is how did Noah get the animals to the ark? And I asked that question in the book, and is what the Bible says is Noah didn't. It says that God brought them to the ark. And in the movie, Noah's standing there in front of the ark, and all of a sudden, all these birds come. He doesn't get them; they just come. And then a little while later, he's standing in front of the ark, and all these snakes start coming. He doesn't go get them; they just come. And then finally, all the other animals come, and it's quite spectacular. And none of those animals in the movie are real. They're all digital creations. It's, ah. it's, it's amazing. Well, let's, let's talk about the gathering of the animals. Uh, I mean, and this gets us into the feasibility study here, because people would say, there's no way you could, you could get two of every you know, known species of animal on that, that ark. Uh, but that's not necessarily so. Let's break it down. How many, how many species are we talking about here? Well, there's between three and thirty million species, and the reason for that huge discrepancy or is that the people that decide those things aren't don't always quite agree on what a species is. But the question is, do you need two? When the Bible says that Noah should get a male and female after their kind, does that mean? Uh, does he have to bring on a, do- a dachshund and a, and a schnauzer and an Airedale? Or does he have to just get two animals representing the dog and wolf family? Because there's species, and then a group of species will be a genus, and a group of gen- genera is what they call it, right. will be a family. And, if, and generally it's thought that he only had to get two of every family. And so although it's a lot, he could get only 16, to, only had to get 16,000 animals on the boat. 16,000 times two? 16,000. Okay, so 8,000. 8,000 families. Okay, but then from that, can we take out those animals that may have been able to swim? Well, also, yes, there's certain definitions, because the Bible doesn't talk about him having to get fish on the ark. Exactly. And also, it's interesting, it mentions that when it talks about all the animals that are dying, it says every animal died on earth that wasn't on the ark that breathed through its nostrils. Well, insects don't breathe through their nostrils. There you go. And so maybe insects didn't have to be on the ark, but were able to live even though the flood was. What what other types of creatures would not have been found on the, on the ark? Well, I... I I think that's probably about it. Um, you know, then there's microbes and really small creatures. Right. And many of those don't have to be on the ark because many of those live in water anyway. There you go. So we're talking about 16,000 animals. Now, the big question then is, could they fit on the ark? Well, you've mentioned several times the feasibility study, and there's a, if you're, there's a real interesting book called Noah's Ark, a Feasibility Study by a person named John Woodmorap. Now, that's actually a... Um, pen name for a man who is a uh, professor in Chicago, but he goes through all the details, how many animals could fit on the ark, what kind of food might they have had, how would they store the food, how would they store the water. In 
more detail, I think, than most people will be interested in. So I tried to summarize a few of his high points in the book. But if you're really interested in that, I'd, I'd suggest that book because it gives immense detail. Right. He breaks it down in terms. I've, I've got it sitting on uh, my shelf at home somewhere. Uh, but he, but he, he breaks it down, I believe, in terms of box cars. Yeah. And how many how many animals? If you think you know, if you if you've seen cattle being moved on box cars, or you can sort of imagine uh, how many animals you can fit on a box car, which sort of leads us into a discussion about the the actual dimensions and the size of this vessel, Noah's Ark. Well, it's the biggest wooden boat that was. Uh, or one of the biggest wooden boats that has ever been made. The Chinese, back about 500 years ago, made some that were bigger. And the boats that we have today that are bigger than the Ark are steel or metal. But it was 450 feet long. Actually, the Bible says 300 cubits by 50 cubits wide by 30 cubits high. And you mentioned Bill Cosby. God tells that to Noah, and Noah says, Right. What's a cubit? <laughs> yeah. What's a cubit? Yeah. And, and the answer is generally thought that a cubit's 18 inches. It's supposed to be the distance between a man's elbow and the tip of his finger. And the most common length is 18 inches, a foot and a half. Using those measurements, the arc was one and a half times the length of a football field and half as wide. That's huge. How does that compare to the Titanic? Well, it's not as big as the Titanic. Uh, it's probably half, uh, uh, half the length or less of the Titanic, but the Titanic, again, wasn't wooden. Right, right. Yeah. And so, and interestingly, there's a man in um, Holland that about a dozen or 15 years ago decided to build a replica of the Ark. And so, like Noah, he and his sons built, a, in this case, a half-size Ark, uh, 225 feet long, and put animals on it, sort of barnyard animals, and floated it up and down the uh, river and canals of Holland for five, six years. Then he sold it, and he has since then built a wooden, full although it's metal reinforced, full-size, 450-foot-long replica of the Ark that floats. And it's the only one that I know of in the world. There are other replicas of the Ark, but the only one that actually floats. Now, are the details uh, of how the Ark was built and the, the, the specifications and so forth sufficient in the Bible that someone can build an exact replica? The answer to that is sort of yes and no. The only details given in the Bible are the size, the 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet, and the fact that it has three decks inside, and um, what the Bible says is a window. Now, for long, without going into all the details, usually it's thought of that that was a length of windows along the top under an overhanging roof. So that's all the details we have in the ark. It says it's to be made out of gopher wood, but nobody knows what gopher wood is. And to be covered with pitch, and we're not sure what pitch is. Obviously, it would have been some sort of uh, water protectant. Right. I mean, there uh, cedars and... and uh, uh Coniferous-type trees yes. ab- would have abounded in that area, so it's possible some sort of a, a pitch from a pine tree or the uh, the Middle Eastern equivalent, I suppose. Right. But beyond that, uh, what, we're, what we have to do is to say, okay, Noah had to design the ark himself because God didn't give him the details. How might he have built it? And so there's a lot of speculation about how he could have built uh, One that I find just absolutely fascinating is a fa- man named Tim Lovett said, if you have a long 
really it's just like a great big box, 450 feet long, and it goes parallel to the waves. The waves would make it unstable if you have big waves in this just great big long box. What he posited or supposed is that it might have had a projection on the front and a stable rudder on the back. And those two would act like a wind vane, which would turn the arc so that it would go across the waves and give it more stability. Ah, ingenious. Do we, do we know that that's what Noah did? No. But it's pretty smart. He could have. Because he, he had the ability to build this. So much speculation as to where this arc um, may have ended up. And... Um, one of the, the, the locations that uh, seems to have gained the most currency is atop of Mount Ararat in modern-day Turkey. Talk right. to me a little bit about some of the expeditions uh, that have gone in search of the uh, the remnants of the Ark. Well, there have been many, many expeditions um, throughout history, and some in the 1800s and, and even as early as the four and 500s. Um, in 1840, there was a giant earthquake that uh, that opened up a gorge on Mount Ararat, and actually, with that, it destroyed a monastery or a, that was built by a monk in I think it was about 400, who had received, according to the story, a piece of the ark from an angel. Now, this monastery had been there for over a thousand years and had many of the relics and many of the writings of ancient writings about Noah's Ark, but unfortunately it was destroyed. With the opening up of that gorge, though, there has been an increased records of sightings of the Ark. Uh, one of the more interesting ones is that a man named Georgi Hagopian, who was an Armenian, when he was a boy, about uh, early 1900s, his father, he said, took him to see the Ark. And evidently, according to Georgie, this was pretty common that the, the fathers, Armenian fathers, would take their sons up to see the ark. About 10 or 15 years later, in Turkey, there, uh, there was a uh, persecution of Armenians, a terrible genocide, actually, and many emigrated to the United States. Georgie emigrated and, and wound up in California and didn't think anybody cared about his story until the 1970s or late 1960s when he happened to run into somebody that was fascinated with the Ark. And he told his story. He met a man named Alfred Lee who heard him out. And uh, Mr. Lee is an artist. And he painted the Ark as Georgie described it. Hmm. And Georgie was there to be able to say, yeah, that's exactly what I saw. And we have a copy of that painting in the book. Now, Georgie has since died. And all we have is his own testimony but he was one of the ones that says he saw the ark. There's a story about this English scientist who's quoted as saying, if you breathe a word about seeing the ark, we'll kill you. Tell me about that story. Well, yes, and that's, that's another Armenian man who was, as a boy, living near the, Mount Ararat. And these three English scientists came and hired his father during a particularly warm summer to take them up Ararat because they wanted to prove, and I don't know how you prove a negative, but they wanted to say, we've been on Ararat and have not found the Ark. And if this man who says that he knows where the Ark is can't find it, then we can say we can't find it. Well, Georgie went, not Georgie, but the other, this man went up with his father and the three English scientists, and his father showed them the Ark. 
And they became so incensed that they say, if you tell anybody about this, we'll kill you. Now, again, since he and his father were Armenians, he emigrated to the United States. And in the 19, this was in the 1850s when this happened. And he immigrated to the United States and then happened to tell his story to a um, Seventh-day Adventist pastor who carefully wrote it down in a book and then moved from California to um, Massachusetts. Later on, he read in a newspaper, the pastor did, a, a scientist on his deathbed in England giving almost the same story. And so he cut out the article and pasted it in the book in which he had written this person's testimony. Unfortunately, this book was later destroyed in fire. And so the pastor sat down and recreated it all. Now, it's an interesting story, but it depends on the memory of the pastor and the memory of the Armenian boy. So, again, it's nothing that you can say, this actually happened, but it's a fascinating story. What about photographic evidence? Didn't Life magazine publish uh, a supposed photo of the Ark? Yes, and I, I have it here. It's a 1960 magazine of um, Life magazine, and there, about 18 miles from this uh, summit of Mount Ararat is a formation that looks very much like a boat, and it's approximately the same size as the dimensions given in the in the uh, Bible. And people at the time went and looked at that and said, no, there's nothing here. Life magazine went ahead and published these pictures and very cleverly said, is this the Ark on Ararat? Well, the article says, no, it's not really, but still, it's a very intriguing uh, headline. About 17 years later, though, um, a gentleman, uh, Ron Wyatt, started promoting this as the site of Noah's Ark. And so although the pictures were published in Life magazine, and not with any real claim to this being Noah's Ark, nevertheless, Ron Wyatt started promoting this, and he couldn't very successfully. Other, others he tried, like Jim Irwin, who was an astronaut who, tried, who uh, went searching for the Ark, or John Morris, who right, is now right. president of Institute for Creation Research, they went searching for the Ark. They disagreed with him, but nevertheless, he heavily promoted this site as being the site of Noah's Ark. More of my conversation with Larry Stone, author of Noah, The Real Story, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Did you know that the hemp plant has been cultivated for thousands of years? Historically, hemp was a vital crop for North America, and even in the early 1600s, it was the law of the land to grow it. Early settlers produced hemp for various applications, such as clothing, sailcloth, rope, and oil. And researchers believe CBD oil from hemp has anti-inflammatory properties. My friends at Ancient Life Oil produce a remarkable CBD oil from organic hemp, which is supercritically CO2 extracted in a pharmaceutical lab. I take an eyedropper full under the tongue every day. If you have stress, anxiety, or fear, have some CBD oil from Ancient Life Oil. This liquid gold is good for the body and the mind. Order your CBD oil from ancientlifeoil.com and check out their reduced prices. CBD oil from Ancient Life Oil, the Ferrari of CBD products. In another reality, 
Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, good, good, a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Author-publisher Larry Stone is here discussing the biblical account of the flood. Getting back to uh, Mount Ararat, the um, supposed landing place, I guess, if you will, uh, yeah. if you would, for, for Noah's Ark. Where, where do you think it is? I mean, is that the, the most likely location? There's three primary locations that people look at. Number one is called Mount Judy, which is in the extreme southern part of uh, Turkey. Another is Mount Ararat that we've been talking about. And another, a third, is in Mount Suleiman, which is in northern Iran. And this is primarily because of the testimony of a gentleman named Ed Davis. But it, most of the focus seems to be on Ararat. And if we're going to, if I had to choose, that's where I would choose it, that it would be. Interestingly, I learned about two days ago that this summer there's a documentary coming out on various searches for Noah's Ark. I don't know very much about it, except I just know that it's scheduled to be released. Well, uh, why is it so difficult uh, to find this Ark? For example, um, you know, I know you talk about Robert Ballard who discovered the Titanic, mm-hmm. and you know that's at the bottom of a very deep section of the uh, the Atlantic Ocean, and yet we can't find Mount Ararat. Or we can't find this ark on Mount Ararat. We've got satellites up there. We've got, you know, a number of expeditions have gone up there. Why is it so hard to, to, to put this to rest? It seems that with our modern technology, we ought to be able to do more than we really do. But we're right in the middle of looking for a plane that's landed somewhere, or we think in the Indian Ocean, a Malaysian plane. And right now they're saying it may take a month to find this, or more, or if we ever find it. And Ararat is the same thing. We, it's, it's a mountain, it's called, the Turkish name for it is Mountain of Pain. It's covered by uh, ice, in some cases 200 feet thick. It's, unlike most mountains that are 17, 16,000 feet high, it doesn't have other mountains around it. There's a small Ararat, but it just rises out of the plains of eastern Turkey, and so it acts like a lightning rod, and it has lightning strikes. Uh, I mentioned John Morris. When he was up there, he said that the static electricity was amazing, and it made his hair all stand on end. There's snakes and scorpions and all kinds of things up there. So it's not quite as easy as just saying, there it is, especially if it's buried under a hundred feet of ice. True, good point. Uh, a number of supposed artifacts uh, have have um, you know been been uh, displayed, and, and people claim that these are in fact from the Ark. Uh, do you think they have any credibility? There's no artifact that I've heard of that has universal acceptance as being yes, that artifact is true. Um, there, there's <laughs> There's a gentleman who later became an Englishman who later became a ambassador to the United States who went up on the on Mount Ararat and found a piece of wood that he thought might have been uh, part of the ark, but he wasn't very insistent upon it. But he said something interesting. He said, "Indeed, I have not found any author who says he himself has seen the ark, although there's plenty who, like the retailers of ghost stories, mention other people who have." 
And that, that seems characteristic, and I'll tell you a story, another interesting story in a minute if you want me to, but it seems like there's a piece of wood, a photograph, a detailed report, an eyewitness. All of these seem to have been seen at one time by somebody or many witnesses, but for some reason can't be found now. It is elusive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's just fascinating. So what wh- wh- why then do you believe uh, uh Larry that that in, why do you believe in 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 the flood story and the ark? Well, I I bl- I believe in the flood story and I believe in the ark. Am I going to rise or fall on whether that ark is on Ararat? No. I mean, I, I, if somebody came and said, look, we found it on Mount Suleiman, I'd say fine. It wouldn't hurt my faith at all. But I believe that what the Bible, there's a, there's a message there in the Bible and, the, and, and in all of these stories around the world for that matter. And that, first of all, God is really concerned about our sinfulness, and he takes it very seriously, even if we don't. And that's an important part of the Noah story. You know, we tend to sanitize it. And one of the big differences between the movie and our our concept of the Noah story and what the movie gets right is everybody died. And when we tell, tell the Noah story to our children in Bible storybooks, we tend to overlook or pass over the horribleness of that. But in the movie, it's there. Everybody died because God said sin is a bad deal. And yet, God is gracious and mercy, and the, he builds the ark to save the animals and the human race. And God wants to bless us. After the whole ark is over and the flood is over, Noah says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, in the movie, that's put into Noah's voice. (laughs) But that's what God tells Noah, and the animals, for that matter, too. What's interesting is that um, the final chapter in the book, I have Noah's uh, secret for uh, surviving the end of the world. And God says that I'm never going to destroy the world again by the floods. But the Bible seems to imply that the world might be destroyed by fire or something else. And so I talk about various ways the world can end. But one of the things is that Noah talked to the people around him and while he's building the ark, and nobody believed him, which I'm not sure I would have. But when the flood came, anybody that was not on that ark was going to die. And interestingly, Jesus Christ makes a parallel. And he says, you know, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to return to this world. And when I do, if you don't already believe in me, it'll be too late, just like people that were not on the ark. And so Noah's secret for surviving the end of the world is to watch and be ready for him for the flood and get on the ark or choose which side you're going to be on. And that's the message for us. Watch, be ready, and Jesus Christ says, choose which side you're going to be on, whether you're for me or not. Let's uh, talk about the, the wickedness in the world in those days and uh, I think Jesus, did he not also say, you know, in the end times it, it'll be as it was in the days of Noah. Absolutely. So and what was going on in those days of Noah? I'm curious to know because in Genesis it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. This to me has always been fascinating. Well, yes, and there's no agreement among biblical scholars what all that means, quite frankly. Now, we can talk about it, 
And I think some of where Darren Aronofsky got his information is there's a non-biblical thing, uh, writing called the Book of Enoch. Yes. And that has more details about these Nephilim. Now, the, who are the sons of God? We don't know. Who are the daughters of men? We don't know. The three most um, typical thoughts are the sons of God are fallen angels. Right. And that's what the uh, Book of Enoch seems to reinforce, and in fact, there's parts of, I think it's Peter, that seem to imply and seem to pick up on that. The book of Enoch talks about 200 angels in heaven that saw women on earth and lusted after them and came down and had sexual intercourse with them. Now, there's other ideas of what that means. The sons of God may have been the godly sons of Seth, one of Cain and um, Adam and Eve's sons, and the daughters of men were the daughters of uh, Cain, another of Adam and Eve's sons, who was the one who killed Abel and was therefore uh, considered to be evil. Um, so there's not quite any agreement, but in the movie, they do pick up on the uh, Book of Enoch and say these Nephilim were fallen angels. What happens in the movie is that when they get killed, in a flash of light, God takes them back up to heaven. But there's a whole uh, subplot there that's sort of interesting, and you can see how it, they can get that out of the Book of Enoch, but it doesn't have much... Re- it always seemed very unfamiliar to people that only know the Noah story in the Bible. Right. But we, we, we know from biblical accounts that there were giants. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, Joshua uh, went into uh, Cana and, and, and came back with reports of, of giants and, and so forth. Uh, and so that has led some people to sort of connect the dots and think, okay, the the fallen angels came down, had relations with humans, women, and produced a race of giants. And these were the, we, you know, we we, we um, my wife is uh, Greek Greek, so I know all about the the Greek legends and the the, the Greek gods of the the Greek go- uh, the pantheon, you know, Zeus mm-hmm. and so forth. And these That's were right. the these were the Nephilim, uh, supposedly. What do you think of that? That is exactly what many people think of what the book and uh, what the uh, book of Enoch will say. So your wife didn't make that up. She got that from the book of Enoch and from other sources. So is there not then an argument that what God was doing was, as I sort of half jokingly referred to earlier, as cleaning the gene pool, that that's what God was, you know, because I've always wondered the idea of a what seemed like a very wrathful God in the Old Testament ordering entire villages to be destroyed, every man, woman, and child. And I'm thinking, well, if in fact these are not humans, these are Nephilim, then you could you could argue that these, you know, they they should smite, they should smite the entire village. The inconsistency of what you're saying is because the giants of the Canaanites would have been after Noah. And so if the flood was to clean the gene pool and get rid of the giants, uh, they would not continue on after the flood. But it says, does it not say, though, that they, there were Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward, as if maybe these fallen angels came back and created a new race of giants? I don't know. I'm just yeah, trying to sort of connect the dots here. Yeah, but you, you're, You may be right I'm not, on that one. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry. All right. No, it's just, it's a fascinating, I mean, I don't yeah. know for sure either. It's just a fascinating uh, sort is. of alternative take on why God, trying to wrap my head, why would God do that? Yes. And and as we study these things, especially if we go into extra-biblical and other stories, 
it's interesting to try to figure out which of these are legitimate and which aren't. I, I heard an interesting story about Noah's grandfather the other day. But, but the Book of Enoch, there's many, many stories like that that um, you know, are meant to ex- try to an, a, try to be an explanation of what the Bible says. Let's let's get the, take some time here and, and and get some insight on who Noah was, and you know, never mind the Russell Crowe portrayal. <laughs> who who was the Noah of the Bible? We know very little about him, except that he was the grandson of Methuselah and the son of Lamech, uh, and uh, he, he was a righteous man. That when he was 500 years old, according to the Bible, he gave birth to Ham, Sham, and Japheth um, in that area. And about a, a hundred years later, the flood came, and then that he lived for 350 years after the flood. So he was about 950 years old when he died. But that's about all that we know about him. 500 years. And then he then he decides, when most people would think about putting their feet up, <laughs> 500 <laughs> years, he decides he has to build an, an ark. But you mentioned Methuselah. We, which is interesting because we're told Methuselah uh, was around not only during, I believe, was he not sort of a contemporary of Adam and Eve, and yet then also he was around to see his, you know, his great 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 grandchildren. He he was a descendant of Adam and Eve. Oh, and a descendant, right? Yeah, he was a descendant of Adam and Eve. And interestingly, according to the numbers in the Bible, if you work that out, he died in the year of the flood. Now, whether he was died before the flood, whether he died in the flood, as the movie shows, we don't know. But he died in the year of the flood. So he lived to be what? About a thousand years old. He was nine hundred. He's the oldest person in the Bible, nine hundred and sixty-nine years. Now, people will say, "Are these real numbers?" And again, there's no uh, agreement on what they mean. And what I mean by that is, do they mean really, literally, 969 years? That may be. Some people say you need to divide them by 12 because they refer to months, not years. And there's some problems with that. Others say that these are just um, huge numbers meant to give honor to these people. But the interesting thing is there's a thing called the Sumerian King List. And this is a list of ancient Sumerian kings with the how long they reign. And these numbers are not just in the hundreds. These are in the thousands of years. Okay, again, there's some things you can do with that mathematically. There's a reason to divide each one of those by 3,600. But the Sumerian story also has a story of a great worldwide flood. And the Sumerian king list, the ages of these kings, the length of their reigns, drops off dramatically after the flood. Just as in the Bible, the numbers of the ages of the people drop off dramatically after the flood. So Abraham, who came along after the flood, a couple hundred years after the flood, um, he lived only 175 years. Now that's long to us. But when you're used to people living 900, 950 years, that's not very long. Yeah, it's interesting to know, you know, what what changed about the planet? Uh, you know, why were people able to live for a thousand nine hundred years? I'm wondering if it had anything to do with the the heavens opening up, and that was there a was there a, something surrounding the Earth protecting us from the damaging rays of the sun, or I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, there is a theory, and um, and I've heard this, uh, although 
I'm not quite sure why, but people don't depend upon this quite so much now, but that there was before the flood a canopy right. over the earth, that, exactly what you're saying, that protected us from the kinds of UV rays and the kinds of other things that come from the cosmos to make us age and to make us deteriorate. And with the flood, that canopy was eliminated or washed away. And so consequently, our ages, uh, we, we can't live that long. Well, Larry, listen, congratulations on uh, <laughs> Noah, the real story. And uh, what's next? What's your next project? And my next project is a book called The Story of the Bible, which actually I published once, and I'm going to republish it shortly. Uh, and that's from uh, Nelson, yes. your publishing company. Yes. And that's the history of the Bible. It's a fascinating thing. But uh, I'm enjoying the, sto- the talking about Noah, and I think we're going to talk more about it because uh, people are going to be talking about the Ark on Ararat this summer. And one of the things I wanted to mention is this, I have a website with the book. It's www.noatherealstory.com. And on there is a discussion guide. So if you're going to see the movie, my recommendation is that you um, take some friends and then go out for pizza afterwards and talk about it. And there's some ideas, some uh, things on that discussion guide that will get you started. Or go see the movie and then go home, read the book. Uh, and it's a nice sort of uh, comparative study. That's right. Larry, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it tremendously, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Hey there, I'm hard at work on another edition of Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter. Inner Sanctum features my monthly brief, a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world. It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast episode pick of the month and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Inner Sanctum and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free. Coming up next time, the life and medical inventions of Nikola Tesla. How Tesla used sound, light, and electromagnetic fields to treat disease at the turn of the century. When Tesla used magnetic field therapy on himself, he did it, you know, in his laboratory and moving through the Earth's magnetic field, he was a big promoter of talking about that the human body was a battery. And every cell is like all the cells in the Tesla car, where they're all lined up in parallel. There's thousands of cells in a Tesla car. Well, there's 70 trillion cells in the human body and each one of these cells takes on a small voltage 70 millivolts in each cell and when they all fire together that pushes the heart and then the heart beats and there's a huge explosion in the body of the electricity so he was telling everybody that a long time ago the body is very very electrical until then i'm richard Serrett. so long for now A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind.
that is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>